my mother is the, the CEO of a nonprofit that focuses on domestic violence, and she's a boss, and she's amazing. Um, and I have a brother who has special needs, and so my whole life I've seen my mother in her advocacy work, you know, working on domestic violence policy. She worked on the Violence Against Women Act, mm. um, you know, doing that work, but then also being a very fierce advocate for my brother, like on a personal level. And so seeing kind of what it takes to really care about something, to do the actual work that it takes, you know, day in and day out when you care about something. Hi, friends. Welcome to Let's Give a Damn. I'm Nick Lapara, your friend and the host of this podcast, and I hope each and every one of you are doing fantastic. Before we get into this week's podcast conversation, I want to point out a significant event that took place over the weekend. Sunday marked 74 years since so many precious lives were liberated from Auschwitz. The world has come so far since those evil days, but we still have so much racism hatred, and xenophobia to overcome. Over the weekend, German Chancellor Angela Merkel said, people growing up today must know what people were capable of in the past, and we must work proactively to ensure that it is never repeated. President Trump also chimed in. He said, to remember these men and women, those who perished and those who survived, is to strive to prevent such suffering from happening again. Any denial or indifference to the horror of this chapter in the history of humankind diminishes all men and women everywhere and invites repetition of this great evil. And lastly, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said, the threats of violence, xenophobia, and anti-Semitism still exist today. The murder of 11 Jews at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, it's still fresh in our minds. So the reality is that we humans are dense and foolish, and we tend to do the same horrible shit over and over again, right? These things happened 74 years ago, and still little versions of it, smaller versions of it, are happening today in America and all over the world. George Santayana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So here in America, a poll conducted by the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany found that four out of 10 Americans, four out of 10 people, don't know what Auschwitz was or is. That number goes up two thirds for millennials. Friends, let's stay sharp. Let's stay wise and vigilant, lest we allow some of the same kinds of evil and atrocities to repeat themselves today. I'm not saying we will have actual concentration camps, although that could be argued with some of the recent stuff happening with immigrants, but I don't think we will have actual full-blown concentration camps like Auschwitz again, but we may very well get our own version of that if we are not careful. There are so many vulnerable men, women, and children that need us to stand up for them, to fight with them and for them today. I hope you will. I hope I will. Okay, I know that may have been a little heavy handed, but very necessary as we remember atrocities of the past and we try our hardest to not repeat them. Okay, for this week's conversation, here we go. You're going to love my guest today, friends. She's incredible. Her name is Lindsay Menard Freeman. She and her team at Torchlight Collective are doing fascinating and impactful work 
all over the world. They're a group of consultants, and they primarily work on global health and human rights issues as they aim to achieve gender equality and social justice. We chat about consulting, billionaires, white savior complex, parents modeling being damn good people to their children, and so much more. Buckle up, this is a good one. Let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Lindsay Menard Freeman. Lindsay Menard Freeman, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thanks, Nick. It's good to be here. I'm so glad so you're official. here. So official. We we are friends. Yes, we know we each other friends. outside of this podcast, and we've been uh, hanging out for quite a few months now, uh, talking about work. Yeah, last yeah. summer, talking about work and life and all sorts of stuff. And I'm so glad that we're finally doing this. Me so, too. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for having me. It feels kind of crazy to be keeping company with Chelsea Clinton who as someone who had curly hair in the 90s and was an adolescent, yeah. I feel like I know her. So and you still have nice. curly hair. And I still have curly hair, correct. Did uh, did you get teased for it? Like was it was it a was it a problem <sighs> or did you just like own it? I owned it, but there were just there weren't like curly haired products like there are now. So oh, you just sure. have to like struggle through your adolescence and have weird hair. You know what I mean? You just it like yep. it's a character building endeavor. So yeah. yeah, but you made it. We made hey, it. Do you ever wear your hair straight or just sometimes? sometimes? Do you I like know when it Chelsea or? rocks it, I'm like, you're doing it right, girl. Oh, she, yeah, she's killing it. Does. So sometimes yeah, I do. She's queen. But you look like an alien sometimes <laughs> with straight hair when people are used to seeing Really? It. Yeah. My seven year old, now seven year old daughter, the oldest one, she has very curly hair. Maybe nice. you've seen photos. Yeah. I don't know. But it's very, very curly. And um, we just cut both of the girls' hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, so now hers is. Shorter, a yep. little shorter. Yep. No, maybe maybe the same, maybe the same. And it feels like it got curlier. Yes, it does. Because it's, it's lighter. Like I have arrived. Yeah, yeah totally. It's, it's lighter. And so it just kind of <laughs> bounces there. And so we're enjoying yes. Yes. like the curls are the yes. real. Curly like, hair is a mood. Back. It is a mood. Yep. Rock it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. We are not going to talk about hair the whole time. I are promise we, people. I thought that's why I was here. Yeah, hair. Let's <laughs> talk about hair. Um, let's begin here because I know a little bit about your story. Yes. Um, actually, I'll begin by sharing how we met. Yes. Right? And then <laughs> yes. and then we will get into some of your stories. So Perfect. last summer, yep. late summer, you work out of a WeWork space. I work at and, WeWork. Yeah, I work yes. at WeWork, out of WeWork space. Your company that yes. we'll talk about later works yep. out of WeWork. And I was at the time and WeWork had their uh, creator awards and so you and I were invited to be on a panel together yes. um, for, yeah, just uh, to try to encourage creators to apply, mm-hmm. but also to share what we do and yep. answer questions and all that stuff. Yep. And it was a very interesting, I've been on a fair amount of panels at this point. Yep. And that one was interesting. Won't yes. get into specifics in case anybody's listening. <laughs> but it was, um, I felt like you and I were maybe the only ones that had it together. Yes. And God bless everyone else. But yes. there was, there were. Five of us? Yes, four, four of us plus four a moderator. Four of us plus yeah. a moderator. Yeah. And the other two, the other two that were not <laughs> you and I, um, one guy at least thought he knew everything about everything. Yes. Uh, God bless him. Bless him. And then another guy didn't contribute at all. Yes. God also bless him. God bless him. Um, and so you and I kind of took the reins. And I really enjoyed that. But as you were yeah. talking, you know what I found was so funny? This The guy that thought he knew everything kept assuming that you're a nonprofit. Yes. 
Right. Oh, yes. over and over again. Because over over. you had said that you're in social impact work and consulting social and social enterprise. Yep. Yep. He literally couldn't. And you even said, <laughs> we're not. We're a company. We're an actual company. <laughs> yeah. And he kept saying nonprofit, nonprofit, nonprofit. Yeah. And I was like, oh, boy, it's that guy. It's that guy. Um, we all know a white man who thinks he knows everything. We, we do. We and know a few of them. That may emerge in this podcast. Yes, we so. know. We we know a few of them. <laughs> yes. Um, but let's. So that's how we met, and we've been hanging yes. out ever since. Um, your story. Tell us a bit about it. Uh, I always yeah. like to open this way because it gives us a chance to get to know you, the people, places, and things that have shaped you into who you are today. We'll get into your work. Stop short of sort of this this current iteration of right. Lindsay. Right. Um, but yeah, share share whatever comes to mind when I say that. The things. Yeah. Of course. There are two major, I would say, components of my story that got me to like January 24th, 2019. Um, And one of them is um, my family, the way that my my mother is the the CEO of a nonprofit that focuses on domestic violence and she's a boss and she's amazing. Um, And I have a brother who has special needs and so my whole life I've seen my mother in her advocacy work you know, working on domestic violence policy. She worked on the Violence Against Women Act, mm. um, you know, doing that work, but then also being a very fierce advocate for my brother, like on a personal level. And so seeing kind of what it takes to really care about something, to do the actual work that it takes, you know, day in and day out to, you know, to when you care about something. Um, that was, she just was a really amazing model. And so, and, you know, took me to her meetings, took me to her conferences, you know, um, I got to travel with her. And so I would say that really sent me down the the path of working for nonprofits, you know, to this, our, our panel mate, um, you know, to his credit, yeah. working for nonprofits it sounds for a, a lot long like time. It, right? Yes, exactly. That transition is happening where yes. you don't automatically equate giving a damn yes. with you have to start a charity, a nonprofit, an NGO. Yes. It's like, no, there's a ton of other exactly. ways to do it. Exactly. That's going. right. Yeah. yeah. It prepared me to be sort of in the nonprofit space for a long time. So that was, I, I would say my mother as a, as a, um, a character in my life, um, really made a huge difference. Um, I lived in New York city for the last 10 years and studied human rights in my master's program, um, was able to do some really amazing work in global health and human rights and travel a ton for my work. And it's really, um, over, I would say, New York City as a place really forces you to become who you are, mm. regardless of how ready you are for it's not that. Waiting, I'm yeah, waiting around. You're just it's happening. It's trial by fire, and I think that was a really important um, decade of my life. Um, but also, really, um, really, I think helped me prove to myself what I'm willing to kind of go hard for. Right, like what I really care about, what I think is right, what I think good work looks like. Um, who I who I trust in my professional spaces, um, because it's a very it's kind of like it's a pressure cooker, right? <laughs> As a place, but also professionally in the sector that I'm in, we were working a lot with the UN, um, you know, and and other you know international NGOs that are based in New York, and so it's just there's a lot going on, and you so you have to really kind of sift through what you um, believe in. So I would say those are two two things. Um, I'm an English major, so all you English majors, you should pursue English as a as a major. Um, writing is, you know, by far the, the skill that I feel like I leverage the most. Um, and I've always sort of always cared about, um, you know, gender equality, women's rights, um, reproductive justice. Those are always, have always been my, my main issues. Um, and it's been cool to kind of roll that into my consulting practice today, which we'll get to. A couple things. One, where was your dad? You didn't mention him when you said your well, mom. Was he around? He's was he a, not around? He's super around. Like the yeah. mo- he, so, he, so my whole 
creative brain I really owe to my dad. He's a photographer. He's an artist. He was self-employed cool. like during our adolescence and our high school years. And so picked us up from school, you know, I would say a, a more not passive influence, but like I, you know, he really yeah. sort of supported the whole framework. And then my, my mom as a sort of, uh, the, you know, the razor's edge kind of advocate, the two of them, there was a lot of really good complementarity. I love it. Yeah. That's great. He's the best. Um, hey, dad. so you mentioned, <laughs> go dad. <laughs> Um, parents are great, you know, mm-hmm. even with all the, the, the fucked up, just stuff that happens, right? Cause no parents are perfect. Like yep. I, I just spent a weekend with my parents for the first time in a long time, you went out survived. to the cabin <laughs> yeah. and not only survived, yeah. but like, you know, there's a couple of times when, you know, my dad said this or whatever, you're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. But overall, it was just like it felt like an like an incredible amount of gratitude. Yes. Like parents do so. And I'm feeling that now with a seven, five and four year old. Yeah. Parents just do so much yeah. that never gets noticed. Yes. And like you even said, like yeah. that takes a lot for the dad in this situation mm-hmm. to like take a, not a back seat, but like a more supportive role yes. to the more yes. pr- prominent, dominant, yes. you know, woman, yes. right? Yeah. And yeah. I love when there's that dynamic yeah. versus, because that, I mean, especially in your parents and my parents' generation, mm-hmm. that was yeah. not a thing. Yep. It was dad, you know, yep. dad goes to work, mom supports him, yep. you know, and Probably when we when we were younger, you and I like it's when women started to get out and do their thing, and mm-hmm. so that's really cool. My mom still has her maiden name, which is for whatever reason still confusing to folks in 2019 that I have a hyphen. So she's it was you know she was really I think kind of trailblazing in that way in a, in a lot of senses. I yeah. thought recently <laughs> about so I've thought recently I don't even know if it would work. So I'm just I'm just you guys are getting the real me. Yes, like adding my wife's yeah. Uh, name to my last name. So you all have the same. So we all have it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it'll happen. I haven't even talked to her about it. I probably should. <laughs> but like, I don't know how serious I am. Yeah. Because I'm definitely for it. I just don't know yeah. how it would work practically because yeah. I'm already so deep into business stuff and right. whatever. You have a digital footprint. As but yeah. at least thinking 10 years back, like I would have at least liked for her. Maybe that's the answer is her taking it mm-hmm. and adding it mm-hmm. to hers. Yeah, right? totally. Um, even if we don't change it as a family name, like she could yeah. own that because it's so so important. And I get along with yes. her parents anyway. We could have a whole podcast just about the names that we, I, I, <laughs> our last it's names. Super <laughs> it's it's super issue. important. It's super important. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. English major. Yes. Let's talk about that yes. for a second because uh, just today, mm-hmm. I think it was the Dallas something news. Uh, the Gannett is the big group that owns it, I think is how you say it. Mm-hmm. They had to do a bunch more layoffs, right? Mm-hmm. And BuzzFeed has had to do a bunch of layoffs. So we've got, there's sort of this like, there's this attack on um, journalism and mm-hmm. writing mm-hmm. and uh, English. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of these English majors and, you know, they end up going into things where they're writing, whether it's books or articles or whatever. Yep. And a lot of my friends are journalists mm-hmm. in New York, reporters, journalists, et cetera. And you said, go, go mm-hmm. get a journal, yeah. get an English degree, right? What's interesting right now is I'm so into that. In fact, I just added another subscription, another journalism subscription to my mm-hmm. repertoire today because mm-hmm. I saw that and I was like, I'm going to keep supporting it. So add yeah. one more. Awesome. But um, it's kind of a weird world right now where you can get onto YouTube mm-hmm. and be a total jackass mm-hmm. and make, make millions, millions of dollars. literally <laughs> millions of dollars. Yeah. Like, and then you have journalists who would die they would they would give their right arm mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. make 75k a year mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so why would you in 2019 mm-hmm. still advocate for english majors yep well the number one thing i think you learn when you have to write for and you're graded yeah, on your, your writing yeah, for your it's, degree a lot of yeah, writing exactly it's more it's more about your critical analysis 
abilities? Like, can you synthesize information? Can you add value to a, uh, like a thought stream that someone else has started? Can you articulate what, how you view the world? Can you put it on paper? Um, and can people understand it? You know, and I actually studied English and you know, then got a master's in human rights studies because I wanted to be a, a human rights journalist. That was the kind of one of the mm. initial points. And, you know, kind of rethought that a little bit, but essentially it has carried into the consulting practice that I have that, you know, my colleagues have um, and that we have in the, in our, in the company. A lot of times it's, it's one of those skills that people can hire someone else to do. And, but you can also, it's almost like being good at marketing or being mm-hmm. good at web design or it, it's a, I see it as a very strong skill set in your toolbox. Right. And so, so I think there's the writing piece, but then there's also the critical analysis that you're forced to kind of yeah. fix. It's sort of squeezed out of you, right? When a professor is having to, you know, give you feedback or you're getting feedback from the internet or you're getting feedback from whoever. Um, so I just, yeah, it's good and to be able to, to write. By and large, people that write also speak better. <laughs> Their and vocabulary. usually read, yep. Right? Yeah, <laughs> right. They, re- yeah they read, read. books yep. and they, they read better, they write better, they, they speak, speak better. Yep. Everything's better and more articulate and less likes and less ums and less uhs. So that's very true. Okay. So, uh, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I I just thought it was interesting (laughs) that you would like go get English uh, degree. What would you say to me saying, okay, I, I'm on board with all of that. We're big readers in my home. Mm -hmm. I'll probably do 75 books this year. My Mm -hmm. wife will do over a hundred. Like we, we were very much into that world. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Where even though I don't look like it because I have nose ring and stuff, like I'm a very refined person. <laughs> I have person. a nose ring too. You do. I, I listen to classical music and blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. But so what would you say? Like my counter argument would be like, I think you can do all of that without going to school for four years. Like oh, for sure. we have the tools now. Yes. Where you have courses and mm-hmm. you can audit things and you, there's all mm-hmm. these things you can do to, yeah. which is really where I'm at and what mm-hmm. I've done is mm-hmm. I didn't get an English major. But I'm pretty into that world mm-hmm. and I have a good grasp on, I try at least, mm-hmm. and I'm getting better at it. Or did you experience things in school getting an English major that you think, nah, like you can do it the other way, very viable yep. in 2019, but you're going to miss out on this, that, and the other. Yeah. I get that's a, a good sort of nuance to this question. I feel like what I mean is that if you're inclined to get a degree at all, which I understand not everyone is, and I support it, it's expensive, it's, you know, I will die with my student loan debt likely. But if you're inclined to go to study, a lot of the issues that we're working on, the sector that I'm in, you know, the the, the spaces that we're in, it's most important to have that critical analysis. Yeah. And, and if you need four years of expensive, like time that you're paying for to like do the reading and do the thinking and get that feedback then and to sharpen that skill then do it if it's you know there's a lot of amazing bloggers who kind of just go for it and they have an entirely other degree or they've been working in another sector but they have what for whatever reason had that critical analysis you know practice and i think that that's that's the key we're severely lacking in critical analysis that's what it comes down to yeah myself included a lot yeah. i'm trying to get better at it but in this social media age right right before mm-hmm. You came down to get mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. I was reading this New York Times article about the the article was basically advocating for stop tweeting. Yeah. Not that you can't go on there to interact with people or whatever your sports updates or even some political like updates, mm-hmm. but we have we have gotten rid of these places where we can have real dialogue. Yep. You know, whether that's a blog, you yep. know, a, a very thought out critical blog post, yep. and then people start interacting in the comments. There's no more of that. Right. 
case in point last week with the MAGA kid yep. and, you know, the, the Native American the standoff, there. Nathan yeah. Phillips and Nicholas Sandman. Mm-hmm. Now, regardless of what happened there, I don't think Nicholas is a victim here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't believe his side of the story, but mm-hmm. what, here's what happened mm-hmm. is people started doxing. They wanted his information to be put out there. Yep. They wished harm on him. They yep. wished for him to die. Yeah. All of that happens when you flush critical thinking down the right. toilet and critical analysis right. because now... Again, I'm not on that kid's side. He's mm-hmm. a, you know, this white kid from Kentucky wearing a MAGA hat at a pro-life rally. Right. Like, there's a few things in there that are not okay. Yeah. Right. Right. But even so, critical analysis and a more critical mind would have withheld judgment, done more research, got more right. facts. But instead, it was immediate fuck you and fuck you back. And it summarizes people to to a tweet. To you a become tweet. a tweet. Yep. Because you can screen screen cap that and uh it also happened with this other senator said you know it was it was foolish what he said but he was talking about he he he's talking about the 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 furloughed employees the eight hundred thousand american workers that are not getting paid right Mm -hmm. now because of our president's Mm -hmm. tantrum Mm -hmm. (laughs) but he was saying um that was critical i've actually thought about that (laughs) it's a freaking tantrum (laughs) but uh he had said he made the statement never in american history have we treated workers so poorly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Made that statement. The tweet goes out. Right. Then people start responding and he's like, oh shit. I did Slavery? not say that. Are you right. freaking kidding me? Well, and the whole like, labor rights movement. Yeah. Everything, everything. <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah. start with slavery. Right. One of right. the biggest, but this is, this is like, that was just not, that was yeah. like totally, but he said that, he responded to the tweet and said, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. Right. I'm, you can't delete it because then you get, in trouble, right, right. but he responded right away and was like, I'm terribly sorry, obviously it slavery, I said it, it wrong. wrong. Yeah. I was just displaying empathy for the 800,000 yes. people that are not getting, Right. but everybody grabbed that first tweet, right. screen capped it, shared it, and he just got, I mean, since he sent it out yesterday, he has yeah. gotten raked over the coals. Right, right. Yeah. <sighs> Critical analysis, y'all. Critical analysis, and a lot of that comes from, so I, yeah. I too would encourage uh, a degree that would force you to slow down, write, think, come up with arguments, um, learn how to defend those arguments, articulate yep. those arguments yep. instead of quick 240 characters. Boom, yes. it's out. It's yes, done. It's, exactly. it's, it's, it's out there. So, And it all comes, I think, from a hunger to expand your worldview. And we, I think we can get into that because I think there are some pieces to, to review or to like go back to there. But that's, I think, what it, what it boils down to for me. Is well, that, expound. What do you, what do you, yeah. So, well, in the sense of like reading, writing, thinking, yep. talking, you know, listening, all of that is traveling, so, traveling, all of that is so yep. important generally, I think for human beings today, but I think particularly with a lot of the work that we're doing, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it would be doing a very solid injustice to all of our, the communities that we support, that we, you know, want to succeed. You know, we largely work in Africa and Asia. And if this, you know, understanding where people are coming from, what their issues are in their own voices so that you can then do that analysis yourself and figure out how you can be helpful then, you know, with your own privilege, we can sort of get to that. But I think that, you know, it all comes down to, I want the world to be as big and as complicated as it can possibly be because it is. And I want to try to understand it the best that I can with my brain and with the tools that I have and get as far as I can with that. And, you know, that's all that we can really do, right? You know, it's it's just try our best to expand that worldview. So let's get into your work then, because we've alluded to it a few different times. (laughs) Um, Torchlight Collective. Yes. You are CEO, 
and co-founder. Noel. Yes. Yes. With my beautiful Reshma Potney, who just my popped, co-founder popped her head in right yes. before we began. She's awesome. <laughs> she's the best. I don't know her that well. I don't know her well, as well as I know you, but she's she seems great. Amazing. I mean, I'm more married to her than either of us will potentially be with partners. You know, we're yeah. just like our I get fun, it. we're just yeah. tied in. You know, I love it. Love no, it. that's really great. She's my girl. So Torchlight Collective, explain yeah. before you get into the specifics of kind of the work that you do. Explain, yeah. you know, what it is and why you exist. Yeah. So we're we're a consulting group. Um, there's about 15 of us now. Um, it's really a giant trick to work with my smart friends who are also all consulting. And they fell for it. Yeah, they did. Suckers. No, they're just the best. I mean, everyone in the collective is is the bomb. Um, and we were all essentially, you know, about three years ago, a lot of us were, that was when I was leaving the nonprofit world in New York. I was like, I wanted to work on, you know, my own stuff. I wanted to move to Nashville. Um, and so we, I wanted flexibility and a lot of the folks in the collective or a lot of folks who are consulting freelancers, you know, that's one of the reasons, right? And so we wanted to basically set up a, a, a model where we could work together. So we sort of combated some of the loneliness of consulting and freelance work mm -hmm. and protect each other a little bit because there's some woo woo woo, as everybody knows. Mm -hmm. um, but then also kind of, yeah, like amplify the work that we're all doing individually but together and so it was it was really out of kind of necessity or not not necessity but just sort of saying we're already doing this why don't we give a little bit of formality to what we're doing and make some things easier on our clients and you know um really try to um yeah amplify is the word that keeps that we keep coming back to like you know when it's when it's just you you can really only do what you can do in the you know the hours that you have but when you're working in groups and when you're sort of reaching out to your to new clients you can really i think do some cool stuff so we were just like let's try this and see what happens and like we're at the two and a half year mark um still working yeah and it, it, the two-year mark is apparently i've learned this because i don't come from like the startup world but everyone's like oh two-year mark you guys like still get along and you're making money that's great and we're like wait a minute <laughs> we're just like chugging along like oh it's good you know it's a good thing but we yeah we weren't really sure it was going to happen, and here we are. That word yeah. consultant, mm -hmm. it raises red flags for certain people. Yes. So a lot of people that Me were too. listening. Right. And I, I too, am a consultant, not mm -hmm. full-time, but part mm -hmm. of my work is consulting. And I have joked before that a consultant is someone who charges an absurd hourly rate to mm -hmm. give advice. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I've joked about it, but people have actually told me that. Like, yeah. you know, kind of looked at that sort of work mm -hmm. and said... You're basically, you're a snake oil set. What are you selling these people? <laughs> yeah. Uh, because literally you walk into a room and you give advice. You tell them what not Sound to do, what fancy. to do. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like you yep. put fancier words and ideas <laughs> to what they're already doing and then they yeah. hand over a big check. Yeah. So is that true? <laughs> and when you say we're a, we're consultants, 15 of us in a mm -hmm. group, we're a mm -hmm. consultancy. Mm -hmm. um, what does that look like? Yeah. We definitely get some side eye as consultants. I mean, I think everyone should think very critically about what they hire consultants to help them with because it's sort of, it can be this kind of because there is world. 100%. Yep. There are so many consultants right. that are getting away with murder. Some nonsense. Yeah, yeah, totally. To, you know, just big staying on retainer and doing all this stuff. And it's like, but what are you doing? Right, exactly. You know, while yeah. your average Joe is flipping burgers for, nine bucks exactly. an hour exactly. like how, how can you justify that yeah. so i i, yeah. I yeah. get some of it even yeah. though i am it's it. that critical thing critical, yeah. critical. Yep. totally there you go well and also i mean it's interesting because our clients because so we work in the global health and development sort of space we work specifically 
to support youth movements, to support feminist movements. Um, we're often working on really uh, controversial issues like abortion rights. You know, we're working on largely sexual and reproductive health and rights issues. So this includes HIV family planning, maternal mortality, um, you know, sexual rights, like a, a range of issues. And so our clients, our clients are mostly foundations, UN agencies, international nonprofits. And so often what, and the reason why we kind of started Torchlight is that we found that most of the projects we were working on as individuals were kind of, were either implementation support, so folks who needed someone to help them write a toolkit or run a workshop or write a strategy, so something that's very discreet and specific, um, or they needed, you know, extra expertise or capacity. It, but it's a lot of spot treatment often, like, mm. and especially to... That's a good analogy. Yeah, like, especially now, like, we... My, some of my favorite clients are the foundations that we work with because I do, you know, I have some opinions about, you know, development money, philanthropy money. We'll talk about that, sort of the white savior thing that can happen, especially if you're working in the global south and it's it can be problematic. But I do believe that, you know, a lot of foundations are, you know, trying to get it right at the very least for whatever reason. And so... Going to your point about, mm -hmm. you know, you fly in, you give your fancy expensive advice, like very often each of these institutions kind of has to stay in their own space and toe their own line and they often can't see, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of able to be at that 30,000 foot view and we're working with the foundations but also a lot of their grantees and can sort of say, hey, like this thing doesn't really look right. Like why is that happening? Like being critical of a weird sort of tweak that just needs to happen. And I as an individual have a tough time with like, okay, we know what the problem is. Let's just like kind of let it languish, you know? So a lot of these issues are just a matter of like, what if we tried to do this? What if we tried to do that? And so it is kind of that strategic advice, like eye roll, <laughs> you know, like you're saying, okay, well, we are able to kind of look across all these different factors within the landscape and give you this advice. And hopefully we give you that advice or help you sort of respond to that thing and then like don't, stay in that space like hopefully that thing is fixed right so it's supposed to be temporary yeah in my opinion yeah yeah and i i see consulting work if you do it well it's someone who is a solutions oriented mm -hmm. person when you're in the daily grind of your company or your foundation or your nonprofit, yep. you miss so many things exactly and you need someone to come in and point out all of the things that you're missing do an audit yep 100%. Literally, yep. and come up with solutions yep. with and for them. Exactly. That's really the job. Exactly. And it's something that they could not do on their own because they're in it. Well, and another interesting dynamic here is that a lot of the members of the collective, the reason why we work specifically also with youth movements, co you know, coalitions, networks, organizations, however they define themselves, is that that's how a lot of us met, is working specifically in the HIV response. That's how Reshma and I know each other. That's how I know at least five other members of the collective. And so we're also, you know, the sort of our, our true clients are these youth movements, and we work with, you know, the foundations and the NGOs and the, you know, the UN to sort of say, yeah, we want you guys to respond to some of these issues as well. You guys have the resources, so how can we shape some of those resources? And then 
have that ultimately positively influence or and support and bolster the work that these youth movements are trying to accomplish. Um, so we're able to kind of also have some insight into some of the stuff that happens in youth movements because we've all been there. That's where we all, know, like most of us know each other. What are you currently working on that you're excited about? Like what are some of the projects yeah. you're currently working in and with and on that would excite us. Yeah. Well, I'm literally leaving for Tanzania tomorrow, so I'm glad we could squeak in this we podcast. Did, we did squeeze yeah. it in. <laughs> it was perfect. Timing was actually really good. Um, but we've been working with this youth network in Tanzania, trying to basically figure out what infrastructure and governance and like operational, organizational like stuff they need to successfully implement their work. There, mm. It's this group of really amazing youth advocates who are specifically trying to do policy advocacy around family planning in Tanzania, which is not a super friendly policy environment right now. And so we're heading there to kind of, we're actually wrapping up our work with them, basically to make sure that they have everything that they need to be raising money, to be implementing their work properly, to be doing their communications, and to be effectively affecting policy, essentially. Um, so that's going to be fun. I mean, it's anytime we sort of get kind of seconded to work with youth groups and youth networks, um, it's super fun because we're just like, what do you guys need? We can f help you find resources. We can, you know, bolster the work that you're already doing. We can, you know, brag about you to whoever. Like, what do you guys need? Yep. And then we sort of go from there. Um, so that's fun. Can you give yeah. some of the names of some of the groups that you have worked with or do work with? Um, yeah. Just so we can get a sense of yeah. kind of the caliber of work that you yeah. are doing. So in terms of our, our, our two uh, foundations that we've been working with for the last few years um, includes the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, really interesting institution, um, as well as the Children's Investment Fund Foundation based in London. Um, and the two of them have been co-investing in a lot of youth-led um, youth advocacy for global health. Um, uh, and we've been sort of helping to, to think through some of that. And we're scoping out some work right now with some some other foundations. Um, in terms of uh, UN agencies, we're just starting to work with um, uh, UNAIDS, uh, which is a joint program of a bunch of UN agencies to focus specifically on HIV and AIDS. Um, there's a big meeting coming up at the end of the year to really focus on universal health care, um, which is a big initiative of the, you know the UN is is sort of focusing on right now, and they're trying to think through how to get input from different communities to feed into that very wonky, obnoxious mm. <laughs> UN process. Um, so we're kind of helping them think through some of that. The UN Population Fund is, is one of our, also our favorite clients um, for a few different types of projects. And they have a big meeting coming up in, in November as well. Um, and we've done some work with some great nonprofits, specifically Care International is one. Um, we're currently working on a project with Change, the Center for Health and Gender Equity. They're doing some amazing, amazing work to kind of mitigate the harm of some of our foreign policy decisions as a country. Um, so they're fantastic. We're really happy to be supporting them. And then, yeah, some, some great youth organizations in specifically Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, there are too many to name. This one network we're working with is 35 organizations and they're wow. all killing it. So yeah, we have a really, I think, a cool um, client roster right now. So feel very lucky. Yeah, that yeah. sounds wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Um, so we could talk for hours, hours. on <laughs> white people <laughs> yeah. that go in and fuck things up for yes. uh, people of color whether that's African people or Latinos mm -hmm. or we've, we've gone all over the world mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, 
mess things up yeah. royally for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. We think we're helping yep. and we're hindering. Yeah. Uh, we did it here in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we came here to help and we ended up terrorizing mm-hmm. an entire group Committing of people genocide. that we're still yeah. Yeah. that we're still holding captive in so many ways, right? We've Correct. created we've created a whole culture of people that are sort of beholden to our desires and commands. And yeah. we've, we're making them work for us still to this day, right? Right, right. Uh, that's in this country. And then we've done that all over the place. Not just us, Europeans as well, but mm-hmm. w- mm-hmm. white people mm-hmm. have done a mm-hmm. whole lot of that mm-hmm. in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do you get off? <laughs> You're a white girl. I'm a white lady. You're a white girl. And you're a white lady, and um, how do you, and I say that sarcastically, yeah. obviously, because you're doing yeah. really good work, yeah. but like, how, how do you navigate, so you know that conversation's real, yeah. I know that conversation's real, people listening, by and large, know that conversation is real, and it's a, this is a real thing. Yeah. How do you sort of navigate that conversation going into these African countries and mm-hmm. places mm-hmm. and saying, like, we're here to help? I would say the, the number one thing that has helped me as a white lady is um, having some fantastic um, African friends who have been patient with me and gracious with me as I figure this out as well. Um, And as I read and travel and try to, you know, not, as you say, not fuck things up even further. For me, the thing that's been helpful in understanding development aid and, and like aid money and philanthropy is you know, at the end of the day, most foundations that exist in this world exist because a white man got rich doing some thing, a tech thing, usually a money thing, a hedge fund type thing. As much as I would like to spend my entire career dismantling capitalism, I, you know, would also like to live my life, you know, yeah. and you know what I mean? Like not just yeah. sort of disintegrate into a puff of smoke yes. because I'm just burnt out from the mm-hmm. whole thing. And the same is true. I mean, we talk about foundations, we talk about governments, you know, a lot of development aid or all of it. There's, you know, um, donor countries. Many of them are prospering economically at the expense of the countries that they exploited for many of, you know, many decades. Um, and exploited their resources, exploited their labor, you know, the labor of the people in these countries. And now here we are in 2019 saying, okay, well, but we'll give back now. We'll give back to, we'll make sure that your, um, you know, your health system is strong. You're, you know, we'll give to NGOs that you're, you know, in country. Um, and I think that power dynamic is really important to understand because a lot of, a lot of the way, like the ways that this money, whether it's development aid, whether it's you know um, foundations, whether it's the UN, UN is kind of its own island of mm. woo woo. So I, I'll kind of put them over there. But I'm thinking specifically about foundations and governments. Is that you know, you just have to understand that it's not. It's not. I don't always think it's benevolent, and I don't always think it's malicious. But I try to complicate that a little bit because. You know, a lot of these foundations, like I do believe that these foundations are, you know, trying to walk their talk. I think they're trying to evolve. I think they have, you know, some space to be, you know, um, piloting some things and, you know, improving and evolving. Um, And I'm excited about that. I think that's important. I think if you have millions, bajillions of dollars at your disposal, you should think critically (laughs) where it goes and, you know, the impact. And, you know, and so we're kind of very enmeshed in that web of dynamics of, you know, seeing some of the breakdowns between, 
you know, the folks who have the resources, the folks who have the money and the power and the privilege and the folks who are, who, who don't always, um, or who don't in this sort of normative framework. Like, I don't necessarily think that economic development always means that you can just, you know, as a country or as a, you know, a human or as a family that you can participate in this economic structure that is inherently problematic, mm -hmm. right? So the idea of, you know, being a developed country is a problematic framing for me. So I have not answered your question, but I'm just no, kind of giving some in insight into, you know, it's never like this, you know, we're giving money to, you know, to folks and it's going to, you know, improve things. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of breakdowns. No, totally. Yeah. I, th I think we've, we've talked about this a bit off, yeah. off microphone, Yeah. but I think there are, there are 26 people that possess the same wealth as 3.8 billion people in Correct. the world. Yeah. 26. Yeah. So there are systems in place that allow a very, very few people mm -hmm. to make more money they, than they could ever spend, mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. You cannot spend that much money mm -hmm. on the backs, literally. Yep. If it was the case that they were making all that money mm -hmm. and no one was getting fucked over mm -hmm. in the process, mm -hmm. I have less of a problem with that. <laughs> like, right. you're really smart. Right. But the problem is that the Bezoses and the, you know, the mm -hmm. Gateses mm -hmm. and the, uh, you know, just you name mm -hmm. your, the Walton family, yeah. the Bloombergs. The Fords, like, the Packers, the Hewlett's, yeah. They made a fortune making their products as cheaply as possible. Mm -hmm. And it's very problematic. And right. so how do you grimace a little bit enough yep. that you can get through it and say, well, at the end of the day, yep. money is still money is still money. Yep. And we need money and yeah. resources to fix all the shit that we're creating. Right. So how do you, that's really the discussion at hand. And, and it's coming to light in a lot of ways right now with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her 70% mm -hmm. marginal tax rate. Mm -hmm. And you've got this other guy that we talked about, Anand, mm -hmm. who wrote the book, Winners Take All, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. elite rate of changing the world mm -hmm. and how it's not actually, you know, it's these, they've built their wealth on the backs of thousands and millions of people. Mm -hmm. And then they time, yep. they put a little money back in yep. and say, look at all the good that we're doing. Well, it's like it's like Exxon or Mobil or BP give the most money in their CSR push after there's an oil spill. Yep. Same with pharma. You know, it's yep. it's tricky. It's a distraction. It, it 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 is, and you know, and at the same time, the thing I struggled with, and I think you know, this is where the insight from working as a youth advocate yep. is that when you have no resources, you can't do anything. And yep. I'm not necessarily saying everyone should take, you know, what I would in a lot of cases, what you know is dirty money at the same time you you know it's a freight train like yep. all this money exists it's going somewhere it's, it has it's, to be spent and because it's not all malicious intent right. i don't think yeah. bill gates at any point no and, I'm, and I'm, i like him a <laughs> hey, lot I, but like yeah. yeah you don't think that <laughs> yeah he, he, he never had a malicious moment in yeah. his life i don't think yeah. but here he is it's a he it's, built a, it's a big it's a big complicated thing so now he does he and melinda are obviously like very generous amazing people they want to do good with it right so then even if in a weird way, like it, it wasn't made that now you have the chance to right the right. wrong and right. use it for good. Right? right. Yeah. And I think also, you know, one of the things that we, I would say the thing that we work on the most is, you know, when you have a foundation or, you know, a, I'll say like a powerful stakeholder who has the, you know, is holding the power, holding the resources, when there is an effort to reach out to communities that are affected by their grant decisions, by their priorities, by their value system, you know, when they're trying to reach out to 
communities, how do you do that in a way that's not just extractive and problematic? Like there's a lot of, for example, a lot of, um, I would say, interest in understanding how youth movements function, what young people care about, what adolescents care about, and particularly in a lot of cases because adolescents and youth are mm. most affected by the issues that we working work on, like HIV, you know, um, access to contraception, safe abortion, things like that. So there, so these stakeholders are trying to understand these populations. But in order to do that, there has to be a really, I think, uh, good relationship between, you know, for example, the Gates Foundation and, for example, the youth organizations that they're trying to support. So, so we're kind of also helping to, like, broker some of that process and make sure that, you know, the in the process of connecting with these communities, they're not just kind of coming in and saying, tell us what you want, and then, like, not doing any of it or not, you know, or, like, coming out with the wrong priorities mm -hmm. and making sure that, you know, a lot of these communities feel like they're being heard and that there's a sort of, it's, it's very process-oriented. It's very, like, you know, making connections and, and, you know, setting up a system so that folks are actually talking to each other and learning and that these powerful stakeholders are actually able to influence their own systems and their own, their own priorities to reflect that. I love the work that you're doing. Um, Thanks, man. So you have had a long history you shared, starting with your mom mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. caring for your, 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 her son, your brother, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. many years in the nonprofit world. Mm -hmm. You've learned trial and error. Mm -hmm. You've learned how to give a damn, why to give a damn, mm -hmm. all of those things. Mm -hmm. Can you share some kind of just overarching lessons that you've learned yeah. to you know, help those listening, help us, the Let's Give a Damn family? I know something that you say will connect mm -hmm. with certain people mm -hmm. that hasn't connected in other episodes, mm -hmm. right? Other conversations I've had. Yeah. So yeah, just some overarching lessons about giving a damn in in our day and age, yeah. in this world. Yeah. It's very complicated, oh. beautiful, LOL. horrible I know. world. Messy. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think we touched on it a little bit with kind of the white savior thing. I mean, I really cringe when I see celebrities in Africa. I'm like, this is going to be a disaster, especially white women. And you know, I'm just like, there's so many issues that are not about anyone who has any sort of power and privilege. Like, yeah. it's like not about you. And it's not about, you know, how smart you think you are, or how effective you think you're being, or how much you think you care or whatever. It's, you need to understand and like truly understand by like listening and saying the wrong thing and having someone correct you and being humble and, you know, just really kind of evolving in your own, as an activist and an advocate. I mean, part of this is that you know, these are issues that we care about. And so you don't want to learn about them before you actually put yourself out there and say that you believe in something. And so I would say that everyone should really do the messy work of understanding these issues and understanding the, the communities and sort of removing yourself in the equation. It's funny because on the same coin, I actually have a conflicting <laughs> thing, mm. um, which is that there are a lot of times where my own privilege like you sort of can say, okay, I'm, I'm here inhabiting a space because I have this privilege. Actually, let me make sure that that's not my voice in here. So really kind of the switching, like when I have access to a space because I'm a white woman who has a fancy master's degree, you know, mm -hmm. and, and how can I make sure that that space that I have is, is, is sort of, I guess, used strategically for someone who, or, or a community that, that should be in that space using their voice, right? And so like acknowledging and removing your privilege, but then also stepping into your privilege and like kind of, you know, disrupting things where, you know, where you can. And there, there are plenty of times where, you know, I'm a young woman. There's plenty of times where I'm traveling and I'm, you know, 
I am not in a space of privilege. And so that's also an important, you know, feeling to have Sure, yeah. and really, uh, you know, confronting the feelings that come with that. And like the, and like in your own time, not like, you know, white lady tears, like on Twitter, like, <laughs> okay, here I am experiencing some of these things. What is it teaching me? Like, yeah, just confronting what it even means to have privilege, I guess. And that's a very uncomfortable, I mean, I think the Black Lives Matter has really gotten a lot of white people to think about what they, mm. how they go through the world mm. um, and, and what it means to have privilege and what it means to be an ally. Yeah, I would say that. Super great, super <laughs> helpful. As we wrap up, Someday you will die. <laughs> no, I'm going to live forever. Live forever. I promise. If it's up to Mark Bezos. <laughs> Mark Bezos? <laughs> I might edit that out. Ugh. No, I'll just leave it in because I'm a stupid idiot sometimes. Keep it real. If it is, a stupid idiot sometimes. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, someday we'll die. Someday we will die. I was thinking of Elon Musk. I don't know why I said Mark Bezos. <laughs> I mean, again, white men who think they know everything. It's all like, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. Don't get me started. You're all a bunch of... <laughs> I see um, Well, I was going to say, if it's up yeah. to Elon Musk, we will live for a long, yeah. long time. But that's not the point. Yeah. The point is someday you're going to die. Hopefully you live a long and fruitful life. Thank but someday you. you're going to die. Thank and you. Uh, in this hypothetical scenario, uh, <laughs> I've been asked to give your eulogy. Mm. Everybody's there. All of your fans, your friends, your family, they're all there to honor and mourn your life. And again, I'm up there to celebrate who you were. That's nice. What, um, what am I saying? Yeah. What am I saying to them? I will feel like I've lived a successful life if someone can say she worked really hard on the issues that she really cared about. She worked really hard. She dug in for those issues. She was there for the people that she was working with. And hopefully there's a marginal, like if the, you know, the needle goes like a little, tick to the, yeah. you know, better side. Uh, that's what I hope you say. Like there's, there's a tiny little tick and like, maybe she influenced it. <laughs> maybe it doesn't even need to be definite, you know, she was part of, part of it. Yeah. Though. And, or at least not, you know, making things worse at this point, honestly, like let's not that add a, harm. <laughs> right? Oof. That's so Sorry, true. Sorry, that's ominous. No. That's, I guess we're talking about my death. That's so though. true. <laughs> yes, that is, you know. I mean, death is so exciting and like I, I'm not scared of death. Yeah, me neither. I think people should not be scared of death. Yeah. Um, the Stoics really had this, they they had this going on yeah. in that and some of them even chose death prematurely. That's a whole different conversation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, <laughs> where so many of them thought way differently than we do about, you know, self-assist, you know, Right. Just killing yourself, taking right. your taking when you think you're done, right. taking yourself. Your time. Yep. And I think it's a very interesting conversation, at least, about like we're so scared of this afterlife or lack of afterlife. I think right. it's an afterlife, but yes. like, but we're so scared of leaving this. And right. I'm like, but this is shitty. Yeah. So do the work. And then when it's time for you to go, you go. Right. Like right. five seconds after you die, like nobody's gonna right. think about you anymore. Like yeah. literally, you know, if you think about the deaths that have happened in the past few months and years, yeah. like yes. one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver, died a yeah, week ago. Me too. And She's why I became an English major to really? go back to that. She's yeah, yeah. Incredible. Mary changed my life. She's incredible. Yeah. I've always loved her, but I didn't know how much she really meant to people. Like I posted uh, yeah. a video on Facebook and just kind of like gave a little homage to her, and it it 
been viewed like 45,000 times. Yeah. Like I didn't know, yeah. I just didn't know that all my peeps were out yeah, there. Yeah, peeps are but here But if you think about Oliver. it, like yeah. how many times have you thought about Mary Oliver today? You haven't. Yeah. Like you just don't. No, I know. And that's where a week out. Think yeah. about a year or a decade out. Yeah. Like when you go, it doesn't matter how much of an influence you've had. Yeah. You're gone, you know? Yeah. The Robin Williamses, the the Tony Bourdains, like yep. these are people that meant so much to us right. and they're gone. So right. I just think death is a, it's a, it's a weird, wild, beautiful, sad thing yeah. that we should not be afraid of. Well, it makes you think about the impact that people have on this planet. Like, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, like Prince and Bowie and the folks, you know, everyone who died in the last few years and, you know, but then the people who keep, you know, the wheels turning, like yep. the people who are kind of doing the slog and like really care. And yeah, I just, it makes you think about what you actually can influence. And I guess to go back to your question, I just hope that whatever that small little influence is, is at least marginally positive. I love it. <laughs> it's such Marginal a, like, <laughs> positivity. Let's, let's aim for that. Such an unenthusiastic answer. <laughs> uh, Lindsay, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Nick. You're this awesome. was fun. You're a badass. Keep up the good work. Thanks, man. And you are too. we'll have you on again at some point. Yeah. Talk more about stuff. We'll talk about hyphenated last names and Chelsea Clinton's hair. You know, the huge. I'm, <laughs> I'm in. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks. Dear friends, thanks for joining Lindsay and me today. Here is my challenge to you for this week. Inevitably, so many of you are already giving a damn for the people and places around you, and that's great. Beware of the white savior complex or generally the idea that you are coming in to fix things. Instead, assume a posture of learning and stick with it for the long haul. Too many people go in as teachers instead of students to really learn what is going on, all the nuances and the intricacies of the issue or the problem they're trying to tackle. And then too many people also just go in, stay for a bit, and then peace out when shit hits the fan. Damn givers, let's not do that. Damn givers stay in even when things get hard, right? That's my challenge to you. This problem, this thing that you're trying to tackle, you're trying to solve, assume a posture of learning, and stay in it for the long haul. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lindsay. To find more information on this podcast conversation and all things Let's Give a Damn, go to podcast.letsgiveadam.com. That's podcast.letsgiveadam.com. A special thanks to you for listening to this show. There are so many podcasts out there you could be listening to, but you chose this one, and I'm so grateful. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. Keep listening, keep telling your friends, If you have any energy left after listening, consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or consider giving us a few dollars each month to support the production and execution of this show at patreon.com slash let's give a damn. This podcast episode was edited and produced by the incredible Chad Snavely. The music is by our brilliant friend Propaganda. Same day, same time next week. I love you. Peace.